This week on the Iowa Watch Connection. He goes to Stanford, becomes a you know, mining engineer, geologist, self-made millionaire. You know, basically everywhere he goes, he's, he's succeeding. If not for being president, he might have gone down as one of the greatest citizens of the last century. And they remember that whatever food they got was because of relief efforts by Hoover. From humble beginnings to leader of the free world. He saw himself as uniquely positioned to deal with a problem. You know, he trained as an engineer. Problem solving is in his bones, deep, deep in his bones. A fuller picture of Iowa's Herbert Hoover, our topic this week. The Iowa Watch Connection is presented by the Iowa Center for Public Affairs Journalism, online at iowawatch.org. Here is Jeff Stein. For most of our country's history, Presidential Inauguration Day was not on January 20th, rather on March 4th. And it was on March 4th of 1929, 90 years ago, that former President, then Supreme Court Chief Justice William Howard Taft, administered the oath of office to the 31st president. That you preserve, maintain, and defend the Constitution of the United States. I do. And with that, Herbert Clark Hoover became president. He was born in West Branch, Iowa on August 10, 1874, still the only person born in Iowa to become president. For most, the four years as president serve as a crowning professional achievement. Hoover is one of the few for whom that's not the case, and it's led to a great deal of misunderstanding about his full life and public contributions. Thomas Schwartz is executive director of the Herbert Hoover Presidential Library and Museum in West Branch. What is the biggest misunderstanding about Mr. Hoover's life and times. People who still think of him as the Depression president, as kind of a do-nothing, cold, aloof individual, uh, couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, anyone who knows the Hoover story, or even bits and pieces, knows that that can't be true. Hoover spent his entire adult life making sure that children were protected. They were provided food, shelter, uh, clothing, medicine during times of war, and more importantly, in the, uh, those post-war periods, which are even more punishing than wartime. Hoover felt childhood was so important because that created that adult. And how you treat children is important in how they will be as adults. And so uh, all of this is, uh, it was, was something Hoover did throughout his whole life. Um, he was the biggest advocate for boys and girls clubs. The national headquarters is named after him. <laughs> um, and he and his wife had just insatiable intellectual curiosity. They were involved in so many different endeavors throughout their lives. And nothing was done half-heartedly. I mean, everything was, they were all in. Um, he put his fortune up several times um, in dealing with humanitarian efforts to make sure that shiploads of food got over to feed hungry people. 
he essentially created the model for what we now call non-governmental organizations, the NGOs, with the Commission for Relief in Belgium. He developed the model, the care, which is the modern-day care package. All of the young men and women that worked for him in these food relief efforts later became very prominent leaders post-World War II in heading organizations created by the United Nations. Uh, so he created an entire generation of uh, leaders in dealing with humanitarian efforts. And it's no wonder that Harry Truman, after, when World War II was coming to a close and he was trying to figure out how do we deal with this post-war world, you know, there was only really one person who had the knowledge and experience that had been able to deal with it on such a massive scale, and that was Hoover. And so even though Hoover was a Republican and different political principles than Truman, he reached out to Hoover and Hoover realized, the, I mean, it, this wasn't a partisan uh, issue. This was a humanitarian issue. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the future of the world depended on getting it right. Matthew Schaefer is an archivist with the Hoover Library and Museum. I always start my tours uh, in, the, in the rotunda, which has a map of the world. Uh, schematic and it shows each of the 58 countries where Hoover was instrumental in providing food relief during and after World War One and during and after World War Two. You know he's the great humanitarian. If you, if you drive up that's the sign that's what the signs say on the road and you look at the map and you realize well there's not one of these coins not one of these markers in the United States. Why? Why? You know he's president during the depression people faced privation faced starvation in the United States and this is what we have to reconcile. This is the great conundrum of Hoover. You know, around the world, he's a great humanitarian. In the United States, well, he's that blankety-blank president who took us off the tracks in the Great Depression. You know, why did, did this happen? And the, the, there, there is a reason. There's an internal, uh, coherent logic. Hoover saw America as exceptional. He said, you know, America is a place where anybody can grow up to be president. Anybody can, you know, work their way up, bootstrap their way up, because he had done it himself. You know, orphaned at age nine, he goes to Stanford, becomes a you know, mining engineer, geologist, self-made millionaire. You know, basically, everywhere he goes, he's, he's succeeding. What he doesn't recognize is that America's changed. You know, by 1929, 1930, it's not the America that he, was, that he grew up in the, in the 19th century. Things change. What led to his dedication in that World War I famine relief effort. And I've thought about this because he is a millionaire. He is a mining engineer in China. Is it because he himself was an orphan? Is it because he believed that he had worked himself to a point where he owed it to others? Or was it almost fundamentally just a matter of he had the unique skill set, perhaps in the globe, to pull off what he pulled off? Hoover was not very reflective. He, he doesn't write on his motivations. But I think you nailed it with the, with the back half of your comment. He saw himself as uniquely positioned to deal with a problem. He, you know, he trained as an engineer. Problem solving is in his bones, deep, deep in his bones. And he had, by that time in his life, become a self-made millionaire and uh, was looking for something else to do. He had actually written to President Wilson suggesting, uh, I'm available if you need me. And Wilson said, well, no, not right now. Uh, I mean, Wilson ultimately taps him uh, 
to be the head of the U.S. Food Administration. But he, uh, he wrote to his, uh, his friend at, at Stanford, David Starr Jordan, I've tired of the game of making money. I know how that works. I have all the chips I need. I'm, I'd like to do some public service. And then the world found him in London when war broke out. And then, you know, still in London doing, doing relief effort when Belgium uh, said, oh, my God, we're, we're an industrialized, modern European country that will not be able to feed our citizens in our capital for the next three weeks. We can feed them for three weeks, and then we're, then we're in deep water. And Hoover says, I will take charge of that. And basically uh, did something that had never been done before, created a non-government voluntary organization to uh, basically provision an entire nation, bringing food from across the world into Belgium, you know, runs it with 170 American volunteers and thousands of volunteers on the ground in Belgium to feed the nation for what he thought would be a very short duration war. You know, war at this time, European wars, the last one that had lasted more than a year was, was Napoleon, 100 years before. They thought, okay, four months, six months, I can put the business aside and I'll get back to it. Well, World War I didn't last four months or six months. When we come back, more with those who work to keep the accurate legacy of Iowa's only native-born president alive. That's next, when the Iowa Watch Connection continues. Support for the Iowa Watch Connection comes from the Iowa Insurance Division's Iowa Fraud Fighters Program. This statewide initiative educates Iowans on how to double check before they invest and shield their savings from scammers. Thousands of Iowans have attended fraud fighter forums across the state to learn about new scams circulating in their area and how to stay a step ahead of fraudsters. Learn how to fight fraud and why it is important to report scams at iowafraudfighters.gov. The Iowa Watch Connection radio program is part of a statewide audience engagement project organized by the Iowa Center for Public Affairs Journalism, an independent, nonprofit, nonpartisan news organization. The center is dedicated to producing high quality investigative and community affairs journalism in Iowa, while also training journalism students to do this work at a high ethical level. The center is found online at iowawatch.org. Welcome back to the Iowa Watch Connection. I'm Jeff Stein. The year was 1971. I was eight years old, already interested in politics and history, growing up in Toledo in Tama County. That's when I learned that a boy born in Iowa had actually grown up to be president. What's more, there was even a place dedicated to his life just down the road. I badgered my parents into taking a day trip to the site, where I read every exhibit card on every display and marveled at the tiny birthplace cottage. I did my first series of radio and television reports from the library and museum about 15 years later, and have been back a number of times since that first trip nearly 48 years ago. The most recent was this past Thursday afternoon, during the winter that seemingly would never end. 
In fact, that day, winter weather advisories were again in effect for Cedar County and West Branch, which might have explained the lack of cars in the visitor's lot, but a check of license plates showed visitors from North Carolina, Missouri, Minnesota, and Kansas, in addition to Iowa. I spoke with Matthew Schaefer, one of the archivists at the Hoover Museum and Library, about his research into the Hoover presidential years. Hoover is elected in 1928, not a close election in terms of electoral college, in terms of popular vote. Literally, the documentary is called Landslide for a Reason. Mm -hmm. There are some great parallels, to me anyway, between the Hoover presidency in its first year and the presidency of George W. Bush in its first year because both came in with agendas that were completely altered, thrown out, because of incidents that happened within the first year. Talk about what President Hoover had on his agenda. And again, the reminder is Inauguration Day was in March, so literally he was only president for six, almost seven months before everything changed. Uh, Hoover campaigned as as a progressive Republican in 28. You could do that in 28. That was a real thing. And he campaigned on, a, on an agenda of fixing the, the most pressing economic problem in America was farm farming. The farm markets did not recover after World War I. And he said, look, we can, we can fix this if we just put our brains on it, if we improve our marketing and kind of rationalize distribution. Uh, you know, we, we, there are instrumentalities. That can, that can fix this, Congress needs to pass an Agricultural Marketing Act. Uh, the most pressing social problem, law enforcement, prohibition, uh, you know, lawlessness in America. And he said, we may not be able to fix that by, by a congressional act, but if we, if we can convene a commission and examine where we're falling short in you know, enforcing prohibition and respecting law in America, we can, you know, we can make progress on that front. So he, you know, that, those were the two main domestic side issues. And he gets into, you know, he's, he's elected and he calls a special session of Congress, gets the Agricultural Marketing Act passed, and the Federal Farm Board is up and running by August. Uh, he convenes uh, the Wickersham Commission to look at law enforcement and prohibition and, and you know, they're, they're, you know, experts go off and they do their, they, they do their kind of research and, you know, due diligence. And, you know, he, he's advancing also on um, the foreign policy front uh, because one of the things that often gets overlooked is, I remember when war was outlawed as an instrument of national policy in the summer of 1929, the Kellogg-Briand Pact. Well, he looked at that and said, well, if we don't have war as a tool of policy, Let's look at naval. You know, let's look at arms. Uh, the arms race. Let's start scaling back our navy. So he's moving in up. 1929. In 1929, arms limitations. And mm-hmm. so he's, you know, he's the he's the engineer. He's he's seeing problems. Mm-hmm. He's gathering data. He's implementing solutions where he can. And you know, come October, boom. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, things that he had carefully concocted blew up with a stock market crash. Now, he saw that coming. He, you know, as Secretary of Commerce, he recognized that and advised Coolidge that, that, that this is not sustainable. The, the, this market has really, what was that, Greenspan's phrase, you know, it, it, it's irrationally exuberant. That's a, that's a little ahistorical. But, you know, he, he made that argument to Coolidge, and Coolidge said, last I looked, you weren't my Secretary of Treasury. I got a guy, Mellon. He's in charge of that. And, and Mellon looked at it and, and in 26 and in 29 said the same thing. The markets are perfect. They are self-liquidating. They are self-regulating. Trust the markets. 
And, um, you know, Hoover as president isn't going to stand up and scream, the sky is falling. There's no, no, no responsible public servant would do that. That they, you know, he, get, he got up when the stock market crashed, you know, and it, it took place over a week. It wasn't like it all fell in one day. Right. But he got up and said, you know, I've talked with my advisors. I've talked with people who know, you know, who know the economy. And they assure me that this is a localized Wall Street problem that the business of Main Street is sound. The fundamental uh, business of American production and distribution is sound. We will get through this. Ms. Reed. What, in hindsight, as we look at it, might he have done, or was it simply one of these situations where the issue was so broad that there was nothing a president could do, and in fact, as some historians now suggest, it took a second world war to actually come out of a depression. Yes. Historians and economists have been wrestling with this yes. for, for not quite 100 years, but for, for 85 years. Hoover was, in one sense, the right man for the job because he was willing to take certain steps to do you know, the Keynesian counter-cyclical spending. You know, when the stock market crashed, he you know, gave it a month, and then he convened uh, businessmen and bankers and insurance executives and, and, and government agents, uh, you know, government actors, to uh, examine the business crisis. They, they agreed, okay, well, we're going to stabilize employment. We're going we're to ensure stable wages. Labor agreed not to strike. Uh, and Hoover was able to persuade state and local governments and federal governments to do some counter-cyclical spending, build some dams, build some roads, build some locks. And, you know, that was underway, you know, because the last crisis he had looked at was a 21 unemployment crisis, really steep decline, but a really steep recovery. And he thought he saw the same thing happening in 1930. Mm-hmm. So when he, when he uh, gets out in the spring of 1930 and he's talking to uh, the Chamber of Commerce, the, if you've come to talk about the Depression, you've come six weeks too late, we've turned the corner. What he didn't see was the next corner was, was chaos. You know, European banks start to fail, uh, commodity prices fall, and he's now behind the curve trying to fix the problem hobbled by his his own experience he had never faced failure like this and hobbled by a, a, a fundamental political philosophy that said it's it's not the federal government who responsibility for for individual citizen welfare that's a state and local government responsibility that's charity that's the community chest i'm not going to create a socialized system in america uh he was also committed to a balanced budget and committed to the gold standard and with those sort of philosophical underpinnings, he was nev- never going to have leverage enough to pull America out of the Depression. The Hoover facility in West Branch is one of 13 presidential libraries and museums in the country administered by the National Archives in Washington, D.C. The Hoover National Historic Site, adjacent to the library and museum, includes the restored birthplace cottage, a Quaker meeting house, and a blacksmith shop and the final resting places of President Hoover and First Lady Lou Henry Hoover, herself a native of Waterloo, are there. And according to Library and Museum Executive Director Thomas Schwartz, the trip is quite important to some of the visitors. About two years ago in the fall, it was a rainy day, and an elderly German couple went up to our front desk and they said, we left something at the gravesite. We just wanted you to know we put it there. We don't know if it's permissible, but we didn't mean to to do anything wrong. 
the following day, when I got into work, it, I was told about that. And so, with my administrative officer, who was also curious, who went up to see what they had left behind. And it was a solar-powered light that many people, you know, push into the ground leading up to the front door. But attached to it was a Ziploc bag, and in it was a heart-shaped car. And in opening it up, it was written in very formal script. You fed us in our time of need, and we are grateful. And it was signed by the, the couple. Now, they were kids in post-World War II Germany, and they remember that whatever food they got was because of relief efforts by Hoover. I get emails from grandchildren, great-grandchildren, again, indicating that their ancestors wanted to thank Hoover. They never lived to do it. And just terrific stories. You can learn more online at hoover.archives.gov. The library and museum is open every day of the year from 9 a.m. until 5 p.m., except for Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's Day. And that brings us to the close of this week's program. We're back again next week at this same time. In the meantime, you can connect with us online, iowawatch.org. Click on the Iowa Watch Connection tab at the top of the page to listen to all or part of this program again for a list of stations that carry the program and more, iowawatch.org. Follow us on Twitter, at Iowa Watch, and be sure to use the hashtag IAWatchConnection when commenting about the program. We're on Facebook, too, facebook.com slash iowawatch. And you can let us know your thoughts about this program or suggest ideas for future programs by email. The address is radio at iowawatch.org. The program is produced in the studios of News Talk 1540 KXEL, Waterloo, Cedar Falls, Cedar Rapids. I'm Jeff Stein. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you'll make the Iowa Watch Connection again next week. The Iowa Watch Connection is a copyrighted presentation of the Iowa Center for Public Affairs Journalism, which is solely responsible for its content. For more information about the center, including how you can contribute so high-quality investigative and community affairs journalism and student training can continue, go online, iowawatch.org.